0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I'm going to break the South Asian norms and only start only five minutes late. Um, but we're very pleased to have this event. This event was uh, born out of a mischief that we did last November in Bombay. Um, I still call it Bombay because that's the way that I know it. Um, we hosted a we hosted an international megacities security conference. And um, out of that event, some of the issues that were brought um, brought to our attention and highlight was, um, was the countering violent extremism part of it and in particular the financial aspects of it and people came up to us and approached us and said um, this is something have you ever considered and that's where we met our colleagues from PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, in Bombay and they we had started a discussion with them and then Vipin uh, which is part of Lynx uh, who is the CEO of the Lynx Investment Advisory he was. He participated in the conference, and then we put our heads together and said, why don't we start this? Uh, why don't we do something along these lines? Many of my South Asia colleagues recently, particularly colleagues from India, said, um, is this a coincidence uh, that your, the event alliance with demo, the demonetization scheme that you might have heard about in India? And actually, it is a coincidence, and that was not the trigger for this event. So it's had a longer lead time, and we are finally in a shape um, to pursue this event, and I'm very thankful to our colleagues from Lynx Investment Advisory and PricewaterhouseCoopers to participate. It's also a model that we want to employ more and more going forward, which is the public-private partnership model. We're very glad to have Deputy Assistant Secretary Jennifer Fowler participate in this event. So here we are, a public policy think tank with the government and also the private sector, um, speaking about these issues to ensure a wide, uh, to to invite wide perspectives, broad perspectives, and also build constituencies um, amongst various entities and bring this together as an Atlantic Council product. Thank you again, and now I will hand over the floor to Vipin, who will uh, will introduce the panelists. Thank you.
1: Uh, Thank you, Bharat. Apart from the introduction that Bharat gave me, um, uh, I would like to say I'm a friend of the Council, Links is a friend of council and we are a fan of Bharat's work and what he does for the South Asia Center. Um, I, I'm so honored to be here today, you know, among this very distinguished uh, guests who have, yeah, and this great event that Bharat and his team have put together. Um, this is a unique event, as Bharat said, where public, private, and non-profit entities have come together to jointly host this event on a topic that generally gets drowned in the whole noise of terrorism. Uh, very few times we talk about illicit terror financing as a method or a countering uh, terrorism activities. So I'm glad that we are here today to discuss this and I'm very uh, happy to support this endeavor of Bharat. Uh, among us today uh, are a few of my friends and few uh, of my uh, colleagues, uh, Ms. Jennifer Fowler, uh, who is going to lead the panel? She is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Terrorism, Financing and Financial Crimes at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Mr. Patrick McCarthy uh, is from PwC. Uh, he's the leader of PwC's Global Intelligence Operations Center and also a senior director in the Strategic Threat and International. Uh, anti-corruption and program integrity practice groups. Pretty long bios, very impressive ones. You should all read them. Uh, and Mr. Prasad Nalapati, uh, who is former additional secretary to government of India uh, and who's had a very large role uh, uh, you know, in fighting these issues. Uh, last but not the least, uh, my dear friend Hagar, Hagar Hajar Shumeli, she's going to moderate the panel discussion. Uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing Hagar for many years now. So it's great to be introducing her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once again, thank you all for coming here. I look forward to these discussions and many more so in times to come. Thank you once again.
2: Okay. Please come. All no of us. hmm Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Hagar, Hajar as, as Vipin introduced me. I'm so glad you're all here, especially on such a frigid day. So we're, we're really excited to have you here to talk about such an important topic. I see a lot of familiar faces in the crowd. Um, I apologize in advance for my voice, which I've half lost. I am not sick. I just talk so much that uh, that it escapes me sometimes. But some people like it, they say it's sexy, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm glad we're talking about this issue. Um, I, uh, I'll say just a sentence before I turn over to our esteemed panelists, and that's just how critical the issue of counter financing and anti-money laundering efforts are in the effort to combat terrorism and radicalization generally. And uh, for those of us who worked in the government or who have worked in this issue for a long time, you know, it's something that is, it might be day to day for, for them, or, or it may not seem as cutting edge, but it is in fact a very cutting edge issue, and is really gets at the crux of undermining criminal actors globally. Um, and you know, I know, I've and I think you said that it, it's this issue gets drowned sometimes in the news of terrorism. I actually think these issues in general have gotten drowned you know, for the past six months, uh, given news of the election and, and, and Russia and so on and so forth. And so I think it's really, uh, I know for me at least, it's exciting to turn to a, a different topic. Um, so I'm gonna end there and I'm gonna turn to our panelists and we'll start with uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Fowler um, and then we'll move, we'll move down from that. And I, th- I think it's exciting to have people talk about this issue from the public and the private sector. Um, and then we'll turn to,
3: I'll moderate a few questions and then we'll turn to the audience. Okay, please. Thanks. Thank you, Hagar. And um, I'll try to be brief to leave that. time for questions. Um, um, as Hagar said, I'm Jennifer Fowler from the Treasury Department. I've been at Treasury since 2001. So um, um, working on terrorist financing and counter-terrorist financing has been really the central part of my Um, my time at Treasury, although my office, um, the office that I lead works on a lot of different other illicit finance issues. I think terrorist financing really is a core, the core issue for us. Um, And um, it's certainly something that keeps us, um, you know, very motivated and very engaged with with all the developments that we're seeing in counterterrorism globally. uh, you know, I wanted to start by setting uh, just sort of a, setting the scene a little bit on how we're thinking about terrorist financing these days. Um, it, it hasn't; it's changed a little bit. Um, as many of you know, I mean, the model for terrorist financing—we're we're dealing with a lot of emerging threats. And it's a little bit different than when I first started at Treasury. Um, but you know, basically, um, our approach has always been to, to go at terrorist financing in two ways, to really um, take steps to to crack down on the revenue generation abilities of terrorist groups, but also take steps to close gaps in our financial system that they might um, they may they might abuse. So that two-part approach is really fundamental to how we think about it. And even though we see emerging um, threats and changes in how terrorist groups raise money, that's our that's our sort of um, our our fundamental way of thinking about it. Um, Historically, as we all know, um, Al-Qaeda has a, 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 the, the way they raised money was through predominantly through donations, also, you know, through charities from other groups, um, from so-called deep-pocket donors. Um, when we now see the emergence of ISIL, we see that 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 model really changing. So the idea that you control territory, that you control resources, um, is fundamentally changed how um, terrorist groups are raising money. Um, it's not just ISIL, obviously, other groups, Hamas, um, Al shabaab control territory, but I think it's it's good to understand that that's a that's a change in how terrorist financing is is occurring, um, and it's something that, um, frankly, is a little bit out of step with our traditional tools that we've used um, um, to go after terrorist financing. Um, The interesting thing is, is as we kind of come back to South Asia, um, in this region, you see a more traditional form. Um, So we see, um, although there is a control of territory aspect, what we see are are a a bunch of groups that continue to use those same um, ways of raising money Charities, abusing charities, um, um, a failure to sort of um, regulate the financial system in a way that would prevent donations from moving around. Those types of things are the way that we see um, terrorist financing in that region. So um, let me give you a sense, um, briefly, of sort of the key areas um, of of issues in South Asia. You know, I think first of all um, we have to all be aware of um, the money transmission um, um, issue in South Asia, and everyone's familiar with the term hawala. Um, It's used in lots of different ways. Um, I don't don't love to use it because I think it has this sort of aura to it that maybe is. um, It sounds exotic and really, it's a it's money transmission, and it's a way. It's a very traditional way of moving money, and um, it can be quite legitimate and in some countries hawalas um, money transmitters are regulated they're legal in other countries they're viewed as illegal so it's hard to use the word in a way that's consistent across the region but <laughs> suffice to say um, when we talk about money transmitting in the in the hawala way um, where there's a, a trade offset and um, a, a particular way of moving money um, illegal legal um, and we can talk more about this um, in you know in the in in, as the program goes on, um, that is a way that um, terrorist groups are moving money. And it's an important thing to focus on um, because there are several different ways, I think, to go at that issue to try to prevent that. But it's an important element that's at play in South Asia is that money transmission method. You know, closely related to that is the use of cash. Um, cash has not diminished in terms of, of a way, a, you know, the, a fundamental way to move money for for terrorist purposes, you know, cl- related to that is the situation um, in the countries we're talking about today where you have long porous borders and it really lends itself to moving money across borders. And the difficulty in really getting at that um, is something that we continue to confront. I, I think you know we should ha- talk about um, the the poor supervision and frankly the abuse of charitable organizations um, this is again something that's a very tr- traditional way of raising money but it's, it's it's about more than money it's really about um, legitimizing the activities of terrorist organizations using a charitable activity as a way to to give themselves um, legitis- legitimacy and frankly to mm-hmm. win support in the population so it's something that is a Incredibly difficult issue to go at, and I think it's really, really challenging for governments um, in this region to deal with. So, you know, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and finally, I think the permissive security environment um, in in a lot of these countries really does lend itself to the illicit activity, like drug trafficking, um, that raises a lot of money for for terrorist groups. You know, so those are some of the key areas, um, you know, that we think about when we think about this region. Um, You know, the question is, what are we doing about it? Um, And, you know, we have, as I said, some very traditional tools. One of those tools is, of course, our sanctions programs that I think are really well known. Um, The way that we implement sanctions to, to prevent terrorist groups, but not just the groups, obviously, the charities, the sources of support and funding, the individual fundraisers from accessing the U.S. financial system. And, you know, that's not just about protecting the U.S. financial system. That's about depriving them of the resources and, frankly, the, um, the, the, the cover that they need to be able to do business, to raise money, to move money. So when we publicly sanction someone, um, you know, it has impact beyond the United States. Um, that said, one of the things we need to do um, and we want to do better at is to bring those to the United Nations and to get... Those adopted at the United Nations, those sanctions, so that there is an amplification of the U.S. sanction action. Obviously, that is very critically important. We can't just have sanctions that are in force only in the United States. Um, another area where we're working um, multilaterally, of course, is in the Financial Action Task Force. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the FATF, as it's known. Um, this is a key area where we have been able to make great strides in counterterrorist financing. Um, this organization, and I use organization, but really that it's a task force and I think it's um, it's good to realize that because it, it, it retains a lot of flexibility and able to react to issues quickly that, that um, you know, an organization might not. Um, the if really has done a fantastic job and um, bringing countries together and helping countries really raise their level of compliance with the FATF standards, and I think that really goes to one of the points I made earlier, which is how do we shore up our financial systems against terrorist financiers? And it's not just about the banking system; it's about these other money transmission systems and things that are more um, more frequently used in this region. And that's where things get really difficult. Um, when we looked at our own record on combating terrorist financing in the United States, what we found was that we had done a great job of decreasing the use of, terrorists, um, of the use, terrorist use of our banking system. Um, what remains challenging are other modes of money transmission and that's certainly true in the United States but it is also very much true in other um, countries and we, we can talk a little bit about that. But what the FATF has also done a great job of is holding countries accountable when they don't reach the compliance with the standards. Um, and so you see key countries in the region that have been through um, the FATF's um, ICRG process. is sometimes known as a blacklisting process, but really it's a, it's a way that we hold accountable um, countries when they haven't met the FATF standards. Um, but just as they've been held accountable, you see real success stories where countries have been through that process, they've done the really difficult work of changing their laws and putting together um, strategies to deal with terrorist financing in their countries, and they have been successful in doing that and have exited the FATF scrutiny. Um, so it's, it's, it's notable to, to recognize FATF in that way, and I think that's a key area where we're going to continue to work, particularly with countries in this region. The FATF-style um, regional body known as the um, Asia-Pacific group is where a lot of these countries are members and that's a key area and venue for us to continue to work with them bilaterally and in that group. And we focus on things like technical compliance um, and I think that's where we can really make some, you know, re- really make strides forward with a lot of these countries. Um, I'll leave it there in terms of the general remarks. Um, in, my, um, in my time as um, Deputy Assistant Secretary, I've had a real, um, the real honor of, of working very closely with, um, with Pakistan and I see some of my Pakistani colleagues here today. Um, And I think this is an interesting um, case study for how we see some of these issues playing out. And the real challenges that countries like Pakistan face as it relates to terrorist financing.
2: Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you, Jen. Um, Okay, I'm going to turn the floor to Patrick. Please turn Uh, to your views from the private sector.
4: Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's great to be here today. I appreciate from the Atlantic Council and Links putting this on. Um, None of the things that I will say are, are... representative of what pwc itself thinks i've thrown that out there so the lawyers are all happy so um i sort of look at this uh from a uh career that i just uh, ended in the um, u.s military i was a um, i was in the counterterrorism field from 2001 onward and um, so as we looked at how is, counter, how is terrorism itself sort of morphing? You obviously started with Al-Qaeda, when Al-Qaeda was a very tight-knit, small group that was able to carry off attacks with actually fairly limited financing. I tell folks that the greatest attack on U.S. soil since uh, the Civil War occurred with box cutters. So that's what, $10, you can probably get all the box cutters you need, and in uh, you go. Um, now, they had to come over, and they did training and so forth and so on, uh, but it was, it was a low-cost endeavor for them to pull that off. Um, So as you look at how it's morphed since then, obviously you now have ISIL or ISIS, um, they're in control of territory, as, as we discussed, which, get, which creates two-pronged issues. One is that now they've got to pay for the territory, so they're taxing, but they're also providing services. But the other piece is, of course, that they're able to generate funds. And where are those funds coming from and how, how are those funds being used? That remains a sort of a mystery even to the, uh, even to g- the government sector. So in our, in our company, for instance, we're helping a, um, a U.S. government entity actually kind of drill into how are they moving oil? What What role is oil playing? How are they getting oil out? So if you look at things like Syria, you've got to think, well, we, we've bombed the heck out of Syria. How can they be getting oil out? And it's amazing the ingenuity of the human mind, and they're pumping it out and in, in um, and this is all unclassified. Anyone can find it. Uh, they're pumping it out in in pipelines that are under that are just slightly underwater, and they're muling it across. twenty two thousand barrels a day, they're muling across. On, uh, uh, with, with people, just couriers, moving it into Turkey. So, so when you start to think about that and you think about how are they going to get, the, how are they creating this funding, it's, it's a daunting task that folks like uh, Treasury and, and the counterparts around the world have in trying to control the, how the money's moving. So as, as folks look now to say, okay, what is, what is the threat landscape going to look like post Syria. Syria will come to a close. It's probably coming to a close now as we watch it. It'll be a long, slow death as as the campaign sort of comes to an end. Aleppo is about to fall to the Syrian government, and ISIS will be then pressured from two sides, very, very heavily. And so they, they'll fall. Where are they going to go? And a, a good number of folks that I speak with are looking at South Asia as the location where they're headed. And uh, so South Asia is going to have a, a problem to deal with. Once that balloon gets squeezed, ISIS is gonna pop out in other locations. And, and what is, how can that be managed? Um, my last tour of duty in Afghanistan, we found a, uh, a huge Al-Qaeda training camp in uh, one of the areas that the US had vacated um, when we changed the, uh, the president changed the uh, nature of the conflict there. And it was directed at Bangladesh and several weeks after we went in and eradicated that particular facility, Bangladesh suffered several uh, terrorism attacks. So the folks that were there got out. Some of them got out before we were able to actually take that down. So, so you can see there is the, 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 the sort of the view of where these guys are moving to. South Asia is key, I think, on their map. And, and so the, the development of the mechanisms to control uh, to control the movement of funds and to uh, create greater t- uh, transparency over it, obviously, is is a critical um, effort to to be able to try and con- not only combat the terrorism uh, that that the terrorist threat that's arising, but also to identify where the threat is moving to, how is it morphing, who is out there, and then finally, um, as as those uh, as the threat is being illuminated because of the uh... the functions that have now been put into place to be able to track these funds um, the question then comes down to governments, what, are you, what can governments do about the threat and how can they manage the threat once it's been identified? It's one thing to, uh, to put people on the list or the watch list or the no-fly list or the sanctions list, but the question then comes down to, well, what can governments do? So if you look at the attacks that occurred uh, in this country from the Boston bombing up through uh, the Paris attacks and the beheading of the priest in Paris and, and Brussels attacks, so many times you will hear... And these uh, terrorists were under police surveillance, or were known to the police. So at some point, governments um, across the world have to have to figure out how can they deal with those terrorist threats that have been illuminated, either through the financial um, instruments, you know, the the mechanisms we have in place now to track the funds through the uh, other communications, monitoring capabilities governments have, and so forth and so on. So what is the end that you're trying to achieve through government? Now, how, now, the private sector obviously can help because almost all of the information that the governments use to monitor, that's all unclassified information. How you ask, the questions that are asked, and who's being targeted and who's being watched, and what the connections are, that's where a, a classification overlay typically hits it. But the private sector has a a substantial role to play in this because the private sector are the ones typically that will be uh, implementing the rules that have been put into place. The banks, individual bank executives are the ones who are supposed to be looking at these types of transactions and ensuring that the transactions are being monitored and properly reported. So the private sector has a huge role to play here in conjunction with governments to help identify and eliminate the terrorist threat. and, uh, And... Again, as I say, that the folks that I talk to are very concerned about the movement of the threat into South Asia, into places like Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Mindanao, and the Philippines, areas that have a, a generally uh, an Islamic or Muslim population that they can go into and then start to build a base of support and a base of operations there. So. Um, it's going to be interesting here in the next few months and then I think the next few years as, as this starts to illuminate itself, which means now is the time for co- governments in South Asia to really take steps to be able to identify and neutralize that threat before it grows in a place like Indonesia with a huge Muslim population that if it began to become radicalized really could become a destabilizing force in the whole region.
2: Mm-hmm. So I, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for that insight. Uh, I think you're right about a lot of the private sector being at the front lines yep. uh, on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm going to turn the floor to Prasad for uh, his view as retired government official from the Indian government. Thank you. For a good regional perspective.
5: Good afternoon to all of you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here on the panel today. Uh, I thank uh, Atlantic Council for giving this opportunity. Let me also say on record that whatever I say today are my personal views and uh, does not reflect uh, the views of the government of India. Uh, let me start uh, uh, by narrating a small incident that happened while I was serving in Moscow. Uh, when one of the ambassador uh, visits to Kuznetsk, the Udmurtia, capital of the Udmurtia province, uh, there was a chance to meet uh, General Mikhail uh, Kalashnikov, the, infamous, uh, the, the uh, creator of infamous AK 47 rifle. So during conversation, he was mentioning about a previous visit by one of a Saudi delegation, I believe. Uh, so the Saudi general, I believe, uh, stated that uh, as creator of uh, the most uh, notorious uh, terrorist weapon, which uh, indirectly are directly responsible for killing of uh, hundred thousands of people, so no God can save him from going to the hell. So the Saudi general, of course, also gave a way, way out. Uh, The only God that can save you is uh, Allah, the uh, Almighty, uh, if you convert to Islam, since uh, your weapon has greatly contributed to world jihad. So from the simple uh, AK-47 rifle, which is inexpensive at that point of time, now uh, terrorist methods, terrorist weaponry has grown much more complicated. And uh, most of them have systems like a regular army, and some of them even have a territory. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it, it, the business became became more expensive and uh, uh, more organized. So you must have seen one of the reports yesterday. There was an uh, attack on a bank in Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, the armed groups uh, looted uh, whatever the money that was left. This is the third incident in the past 20, 25 days since uh, demonetization came into effect on November 9. This shows the cash crunch uh, among the militants there and they are directly, uh, they are attacking uh, banks to steal whatever the money is available. Surprisingly, since uh, demonetization came into effect, this was peaceful. There was no stone throwing, no demonstrations, no burning of schools. So uh, as they say that uh, each young person is given something like 500 rupees to 1,000 rupees to throw stones, and much more for uh, attacking soldiers and things. So these were all paid in uh, rupees, 500 notes, and uh, 1,000 notes, which are now banned. So there's no cash available. So we'll talk about demonetization and its impact a little later, but uh, generally deal with what are the different sources of uh, uh, financing the uh, terrorists are able to manage. Uh, One is, of course, uh, the state funding uh, directly or indirectly. Uh, second is the terrorist organizations are involved in uh, business and uh, commercial enterprises and there is private funding. The state funding has had both uh, legal tender as well as uh, fake currency. The fake currency is a big issue in South Asia, you must have noted. So uh, particularly in India, uh, the fake Indian currency is uh, printed in large quantity in one of the country neighboring countries and smuggled into India through the border of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, and through Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Gulf countries, and even Southeast Asia. Uh, Bangladesh, by far, it used to be the most uh, used land route for pushing the counterfeit currency because of the porous borders there. Second is funding through the NGOs, which were mentioned, uh, madrasas, and uh, semi-official institutions. So much of the points that, uh, these terror groups get is in small amounts of donations for the, through the charities. The Jakarta collections and these things, although there were uh, religious connotations, but there were no controls on how these are collected and uh, given to the people. So the business uh, and trade activities, Afghan uh, drug trade, which have been noted, and uh, the Company. Business empire. You must have heard of this, Dawood Ibrahim, who was a small scale uh, smuggler to begin with. So, he, he, uh, after the 93 Bombay attacks in which he was involved, uh, he moved to other countries and uh, he built a huge financial empire, particularly in Gulf countries, UAE, Saudi Arabia, now moved into Africa and uh, also Southeast Asia. So, he's declared as a uh, specialty. Special global terrorist by the United States and uh, United Na- United States and United Nations also is taking up the issue. The money uh, then offshore companies. Uh, so there I, I understand that there are 77 such offshore locations where money is stashed. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, black money goes in, but also the terrorist organizations keep their money there. Stock market uh, investments. So there are uh, not many instances, but uh, on odd occasions, I think uh, there were there are uh, issues came up where the front companies were investing in these comp- uh, stock markets. But uh, the most uh, interesting uh, area where uh, terror funds are also parked are uh, gold and real estate investments in huge uh, uh, channels. So what are these uh, channels of the money transfer? How do they uh, transfer these monies? So of course, banking channels is pretty. Well used because most of them are genuine uh, commercial uh, transactions. The money transfer services, which have been talked about, the Western Union and others. And if you open internet, you see hundreds of these money transfer companies. Who God knows who are all of them, and they transfer money. Hawala transactions uh, uh, is pretty still is a traditional method, but it is pretty strong. It is used by even genuine uh, people. Like most of this. Uh, people who work in gulf countries they transfer all their money through hawala transactions which is pretty easier and uh, here the cash doesn't cross borders so the tra- accounts are tallied subsequently but it's pretty well working so most of the terrorist money uh, generated from gulf countries as well as uh, from other south asian countries is transferred through hawala transactions the couriers couriers carry hard cash through across the borders and even through flights there are lots of them were caught in Bangladesh. So having known the sources, how do we uh, disrupt these illicit financing sources? Uh, so what in India we, we are doing is uh, we have this financial intelligence unit as part of the Ministry of Finance, which is a nodal agency to process reports and send alerts to the agencies. Uh, a new law came uh, in August this year to end binami transactions in banks as well as the real estate sectors. So India canceled uh, registration of uh, 9,000 NGOs uh, for various reasons. Uh, One of them is uh, the Islamic Research Foundation of Jakir Naik, who is stated to have influenced some of the terrorists uh, involved in uh, restaurant attack in July in Dhaka. Uh, So so the the special fake Indian currency notes coordination group is set up in uh, Ministry of Home Affairs to share intelligence between uh, various states and the central agencies. The terror funding and fake currency cell was also set up in National Investigating Agency uh, to investigate the terror financing. The Combating Financing financing of Terrorism cell uh, is another cell which was set up in the Ministry of Home Affairs to coordinate with FATF, which was just mentioned by Jennifer, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, an intergovernmental global mechanism. Uh, India is also a member of uh, the OECD and uh, G20 standard for automatic exchange of financial account information. Uh, While these uh, multilateral uh, arrangements uh, will uh, uh, monitor the transfers through legal channels and uh, uh, banking channels and things, but what, uh, in our experience, the most successful Uh, arrangements was bilateral agreements uh, with, particularly, Bangladesh, Nepal. So in Bangladesh, huge amounts of uh, fake currencies were caught, both at the airports and as well as other places. Uh, Let me come back to demonetization, which I just mentioned uh, when I began my uh, comments. The scheme was uh, aimed at removing uh, unaccounted wealth uh, in the form of black money, criminal (coughs) proceeds, Uh, uh, counterfeit money, and uh, Indian currency uh, hoarded and distributed by these terrorist groups. Uh, The results of uh, demonetization is now almost uh, one and a half month. It's uh, uh, nearly one and a half month. The results are probably mixed. Uh, One, of course, uh, very direct uh, impact was uh, uh, printing of fake Indian currency uh, became redundant. Uh, probably until they create uh, new capabilities to print new currency, they are out of business. Uh, whatever the currency uh, already they holding are uh, moved into India again redundant that cannot be used. So this has led to uh, in operation of some of these uh, terrorist groups, uh, particularly in Jammu and Kashmir, and also other places. Uh, Hawala transactions are affected badly because of the liquidity crunch. Uh, and it will remain so for some time. Uh, separatist activities in J&K came to halt, as I mentioned in one of the incidents. Uh, another area is militant activities in the Northeast uh, is, again, uh, badly affected. So whatever the money they have, uh, they cannot change it. So they are uh, uh, using a kind of... Uh, Uh, criminal activities to go and at gunpoint change the money, but of the limited scales, but uh, the government uh, agencies are able to catch them. The other uh, area uh, is uh, Maoist uh, terrorist groups, the Naxalite groups. The Naxalites, again, amassed huge money, but they kept uh, hidden this money in uh, forests and uh, other areas. Now they can't move this money anymore because most of all this money these people are holding is basically 500 notes and 1,000 notes, uh, which is one of the reasons that the government decided to ban these notes, the higher demonization notes. And uh, more than 300 Naxal activists surrendered in the first 10 days of the demonetization because of the cash crunch. They couldn't survive in the forests anymore. Uh, while there is a very clear, clear short-term shock and immobilization of these terror groups, uh, but uh, in the long term, whether it will sustain is a big question mark. Unless uh, sustain these measures, uh, put more pressure, probably things might come back to normal. I think that's where I think the government initiated a lot of steps uh, uh, to catch wherever uh, the money changes are happening. And they say that the new nodes that have been come into existence now have uh, greater security um, uh, Issues which is difficult for uh, anybody to fake them. So these are some of the, my general comments. If uh, anything else, later we can discuss further. Okay,
2: thank great, you. thank you, thank you, Prasad. So I'm I'm going to launch. Um, I'll start the discussion off with just a few questions before we open it up to the audience. Um, I'm going to kick off with you know following up on on some of your last comments on some of the systemic threats that really you know, contribute to terrorist financing in the region and undermine anti-money laundering efforts. Um, And it's something actually that I think all the panelists can talk to. And so I'd like to delve a little deeper on the question of Hawala. Yeah. and charities as well, in particular, um, and maybe even trade-based money laundering, or, or you know, any other threats that that you all deem as as some of the most significant. I think, first of all, for the audience, I'm not sure if all you know. Just a very quick definition, and any of you can correct me. Um, but the definition of hawala in general is an informal money movement system, and so what that means, for example, is that um, you have just as an example, there are many, it takes many different forms, but let's say it's somebody who is, who owns a small grocery or a gas station or something like that. Um, He or she happens to also be from um, India or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or wherever. And just culturally, a lot of these systems actually de- developed culturally where somebody wants to move money, wants to send money back home. They want to do it in a really easy, really informal system, very cheap system. So they go to their friend who also happens to run a business and says, you know, hey, can your contact in Delhi, give give a thousand dollars to my cousin, um, you know, and then they will contact their contact there in in Delhi, and that person will have a ledger, and at some point they kind of break this ledger even. And so um, it started off really as something cultural and informal and and oftentimes quite innocent. Unfortunately, because there is no trace of money moving in any system where somebody can see it the way you could in a bank, um, it also lended itself vulnerable to abuse by criminal actors. Um, and so so I'm hoping we can talk about that. Let's start with that with that subject. Um, and what I'm ma- very interested in in number one is how how significant is this threat, and also what can the regional governments do to combat this threat more effectively? Um, so let's let's start with you, and then maybe we can move this way.
5: Yeah, as you said, hawala is more of an informal arrangement. Mm-hmm. So most of these uh, workers from South Asia uh, who go to Gulf countries for employment, they're very small level kind of workers, artisans and. Uh, construction workers, uh, household workers. Uh, they won't have any bank accounts in mean, most of these countries where they're working. And uh, they want the money quickly go to their people. So their people back home also must have been very poor. And they <laughs> might not have bank accounts at all. And bank account, opening a bank account is not pretty easy, at least in uh, earlier days. Uh, you need all kinds of proofs. Uh, and most of the times in these countries, they don't have any kind of proof or kind of things like you have in the US. Uh, so they felt, OK, there is a, uh, a shop, retail shop next door. And this fellow acts as a kind of agent. So they buy things there. Then they give this money I want to be sent to my fellow. This fellow acts as an agent, picks up this money, and somebody comes and collects. And uh, this man is given a kind of number. Uh, a dollar note number or rupee note number. And uh, this number is given to him. He will call India and tell him somebody will come to you, and this is the number you have to tell him, and then he will hand over the money. And uh, the agent uh, of, say, in Saudi Arabia or uh, this fellow will contact his sub agent in a, either India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. He says, so and so, on, so, on, so on. this is the amount. This is the pin code. Go and deliver. And it uh, goes, and uh, they check. Uh, and once uh, the number is tallied, the m- money is given. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. And uh, most, 99% of the times, it never fails. It goes for sure. And uh, it's, it's, it's used by all genuine workers. Uh, it's not something it's started by a terrorist or somebody. So in uh, one of the investigations, initially, uh, one of my uh, colleague's uh, father working in uh, Gulf countries, I met him, I asked him, uh, uh, how do you transfer the money? He said, Hawala. So can you give me names of Hawala agents? He said, of course, no. You people, your government, you want to catch him? Never. We'll protect this Hawala agents. So the Hawala uh, thing is so, uh, easy to work and uh, pretty sure that you, the money will reach straight to the person that connected by, overnight, in one hour. It's much faster than the banking channels. Uh, so it's much used. So once uh, the channel is available, anybody can use it. So over time, of course, as the terrorism became a major issues, people, uh, terrorists, started using it. So many of these people go for Hajj. Uh, so they collect money. So they go to the mosques. And uh, they say that we are persecuted, uh, say, in India, Bangladesh, whatever it is. And uh, we want to build a mosque there. We are not able to build. We want to build a school. It cannot be done. So then uh, there's a pouring of donations. People give huge donations. And these donations basically you can't carry home. Because uh, at the immigration, you have to answer how you bring that money, what is this Mm -hmm. purpose of this, who has given. So the easiest way is Mm hawala. So no questions asked. No uh, limits for any amounts, and you're just given and it uh, (coughs) will land. By the time you are there, it will come. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy and clean way for the terrorists to work. (coughs) Uh, The money is raised and uh, sent to their agents. And for uh, for a while, even Western Union worked like that, Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
5: despite being uh, a a fair channel. So again, this is the same system that's applied there. The principle is same. Uh, no questions were asked in earlier days, at least. So wherever the Australians go and give the money, and they give the number, mm-hmm. similar way, and uh, the, money, the the numbers were uh, many of time conveyed through uh, email. So the person there go and collects the money. Uh, so this it, it, it's a pretty easy way of transferring money. Mm-hmm. So question is, how do you control it? It's as you said, informal. You can't see them. Where are they located? No, we don't know. Where are they located? Uh, So only way that can locate is basically that when they are carrying this money, sometimes this uh, uh, distribution system is uh, so large, sometimes they carry these vans. So occasionally you'll land into them, and they met with some accident, and you check whether they're holding up money, a lot of money there. So uh, again, this, when the this number is being passed through internet or email many times when the government agents were able to locate so the ma- number the address and things they were able to catch the particular person so it 's very difficult uh, it 's not easy it's only if you are lucky you can get them, and most of them you are not lucky. Mm-hmm. so money goes very interesting
2: and what from the government perspective i mean when you have, Jen, when you have In your dealings bilaterally, what do you advise governments? And, you know, I know obviously FATF has their best practices as well. Maybe you could go into it a bit of just what the best way is to handle these types of informal systems and
3: include charities maybe
2: in that. that.
3: Right. So, I mean, for us, when we think about uh, this, is where, you know, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing objectives um, kind of sort of come together with financial inclusion objectives because hawalas do provide a very important financial service to people who aren't likely to have a bank account or want a bank account and have a need for a financial service is a little bit different than banking services. So Hawala as a subset of money services businesses, which is sort of the big category of what we're talking about, if you're talking about exchange houses in some regions, money transmitters in others, Hawalas, um, that's a, a financial service that we want to protect and we think is valid and, and provides um, service to a lot of people that we want in the financial system for obvious reasons. Um, so the real question is, you know, informal, formal, I think the real question is how do we regulate those providers? Um, what we want is them to be regulated. So. Um, As I said at the beginning, some countries, hawala as a term is viewed as illegal. Um, Some, in some places, hawalas can be registered and they're registered as a money service business and so they're regulated. But what we're advocating is for regulated services um, along the lines of money transmission services that provide a service to a a type of customer that that as you you described doesn't necessarily want a bank account or want to go seek one. Um, So it's something that we think is really important. Um, When you regulate a money service business, you have the opportunity to put them under the same type of requirements that a bank would have with a little bit of an adjustment for the type of service they're providing Um, there might be a different level of due diligence a different level of reporting but what you have is the way to go in and make sure they're doing the right They have their eyes open and looking for and reporting potential illicit activity Um, and I think that you know that's a real key here and I mean keep in mind that money services businesses do require they rely on banks to move ultimately move the money back and forth so what we've seen globally is an issue where money services businesses are losing access because they are viewed as high risk. So what we want to do is put them in a place where they can survive, where they can get bank accounts, um, where they can continue to provide the services that, that, that a lot of people um, depend on. Um, at the same time, protect them from you know terrorist abuse. Um, so that's how we're thinking about it globally, and certainly FATF has done a lot of work, and, and I think the fundamental issue here, as it is in a lot of cases, is capacity. So when you have, you know, no, numerous, numerous, numerous money transmitters, hawalas, or others. Um, how does a country supervise that group of financial service providers? How do they go examine them? How do they get them all registered? As you might imagine, it's an enormous undertaking. And then, how do you find out who's illegally providing the service? Um, in a lot of cases, as Hagar said, you know, someone's a shopkeeper is also providing money services and they're sh- and using their bank account. A bank might not know that. Um, So some of the engagement we've done with banks, and as I mentioned, I've been to Pakistan numerous times and met with the financial sector there. They're very attuned to this issue, and they, they, they work really hard to try to identify illegal hawala operators that are using their bank account to provide money services. So, I mean, there is a lot of vigilance that's going on there. You know, as it relates to charities, it's the same kind of approach. Um, You know, charities need to be better supervised and better regulated in a lot of places um, for AML, CFT reasons. I think what we have advocated, though, is a risk-based approach. So how do countries identify charities that are at high risk to be abused by terrorist groups? Um, and, and the FATF has articulated some of the, you know, indicators that, that, that supervisors can use to identify those charities that are at mo- most at risk and has articulated the appropriate, you know, means to, to, to supervise and regulate them.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. And, then, and Patrick, from your perspective as well, from the private sector, I mean, are there controls in place that you advocate for that you think could help?
4: So, I mean, I think as the, the other panelists have said, trying to control Hawala is, is extremely difficult. We've tried now since 2001, even before 2001, and it's very, very, very difficult. Even with the, all the advances in Pakistan, Pakistan is still, a, you know, certain areas of Pakistan are totally ungoverned, and Hawala is what make the, that's what makes it all turn. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what, uh, you know, the challenge with Hawala's underscores is that you know, th- there is a limit to how far technical oversight and technical means can really crack the nut here, right? You have to be very, very well attuned at the, you know, the police and the enforcement agencies need to be really well attuned in terms of, of when they suspect individuals of some kind of a terrorist or other nefarious activities, they need to really zero in on Where are they getting the money? How are they moving the money? What is the network that they're operating within? And they can't just look at network of other bad actors. It's got to be the network of facilitators as well. Mm -hmm. So many times police agencies, especially in sort of under-resourced nations and, and jurisdictions, will look just to that sort of, tight-in network, the actual bad actors, without perhaps getting to the next level or the level after that, that creates the sort of the view of the network, especially of facilitators. Mm-hmm. Typically, the facilitators will be, there'll be a gravitation towards the facilitators that will do the things that you want facilitated. So that, so that the, those that are engaged in nefarious acts will typically have a, have a means to know who, the, who those facilitators are that will help them do it. So the, knowing the facilitators will actually help expand their view of what the network is. Mm-hmm. So from, from the perspective of, of how, how you pursue all of that, I think, again, the, uh, the private sector can help because a lot of these folks are known, right? If you go into an, a bad neighborhood, the bad guys, the good, the good folks in the neighborhood all know who the bad guys are. So, to the extent that the that the uh, that the good or proper or, or lawful actors also are vigilant and they go to the authorities and they they inform the authorities, hey, look, these guys, we think these guys are involved. We keep hearing this hawala is out there. People are are not using us; they're using a, this particular hawala. I think that there is there is benefit there from a cooperation between the private sector and the government in terms of identifying where these guys might be, sort of, you know, running sort of beneath the radar. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I, I want to shift the conversation a bit to the growth of terrorist organizations in the region and the increase in violence in, in the region. You know, I, this, just this year, State Department designated two terrorist organizations in the South Asian region. It was um, ISIL or ISIS in the Khorasan province um, and Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. and you know, those developments are quite concerning, and I think just to build, Patrick, on what you mentioned earlier, of what you guys see in, in your analysis of once ISIS is squeezed out of the Middle East, that they may move to South Asia. Um, and, and to build on what you had mentioned as well, Jen, about the shift in methods that the terrorist organizations use to raise funds and to generate funds through control of territory, and, and, and so on, so what does that mean for the frontier of counterterrorist financing, for the future of counter financing and anti-money laundering, um, you know, how can Treasury shift its, um, its objectives and its practice? How can the private sector also adapt? Um, and the regional governments as well. So let's go this way. This time.
3: That's <laughs> um, no, it is concerning. Um, and I don't know that I have a great answer for you because mm-hmm. I think this is the challenge in looking at emerging threats um so if 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 we see ISIL come into this region, um, the question is whether they'll use those same traditional methods that we've been talking about, you know, during this whole talk and the things that we've been, um, you know, very practiced at addressing um, for the past decade. Um, the abuse will they abuse charities, will they use hawalas, will they move through cash? Will they do the things that um, you know, we know very well that other terrorist groups in the region are already doing? And so it's just really up to us to use our same methods that we have all along to really focus on the gathering of information. And intelligence, and you know, at Treasury, we are incredibly well positioned to do that with our own in-house um, sort of intelligence um, um, group, um, and and use that information to devise the strategies that we can to work with the partner governments in mm-hmm. the region. So it's sort of the same playbook for us, um, but we got to be adaptable and flexible, and we've got to continue to really understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that information is really the challenging piece of it. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you get the information you need to know what's happening? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: yeah I mean, I agree completely. I think that the, um, you know, really it's this, this sort of the growing sophistication of the terrorist threat, right? So some of the terrorist threat is it's not going to cost a nickel. They just go out, they ask for homegrown actors to act on their own. So they're going to use their, whether they have a, you know, a paper route, whether they are a, a dishwasher in a restaurant, whether they're a bank employee or a truck driver. Um, they're asking them to undertake terrorist acts without any financing at all. Um, that's a huge challenge right, to, to, the, to authorities around the world. Um, and as, as ISIS or ISKP or ISIL, as they all grow and the balloon is squeezed and they start to move off, they have developed a level of sophistication now that exceeds what where, say, al-Qaeda was. Al-Qaeda didn't have any, any designs per se on, on territory. They wanted to export the fight back principally to the United States. Um, whereas ISKP has, has built a level of sophistication in terms of how to operate the functions, you know, the sort of governmental functions we heard about earlier. So as they, as they move around the world, I, I mean, I suspect what you will see will be a, a greater reliance on trade-based money laundering and other ways to take the illicit funds that they will take with them. And they're, they're going to take those funds with them. I just can't imagine that they're going to cut and run and leave. They'll use the smuggling routes that they've used to get oil and so forth out of the uh, out of Syria. And they will smuggle those funds out. And they will look for ways to, to start to infuse those funds into legitimate businesses, legitimate concerns, so that they can have those funds available to them, whether to support their own um, you know, upkeep, daily upkeep, or, and/or to continue to export their terrorist activities um, externally. And so, if you look at a place like Mindanao, the Philippines, Mindanao is a it would be an area that would be ripe for some sort of um, a real fight down there to to reestablish some kind of uh, of uh, you know caliphate type of, of territory. Um, it is it's it's. Uh, geographically distinct from the rest of the Philippines you have to give the boats to get there um, the government is is has moderate level of strength there so you could see them pouring into a place like that and, and, and sort of coming in and overwhelming the local authorities and then kind of try and stake their claim to a place like that but you can see it happening in other places too so uh, you know I think they're going to be moving large sums of money they're going to be trying to reestablish in certain locations and I think that's going to th- that is going to force them to be sophisticated in how they're trying to stay under the radar and that's why I think trade-based money laundering schemes and other schemes will be how they'll try and do it again trying because they're smart they know where they know what the rules are they know what the reporting requirements are they know what the, what these various um, government actions are um, so I think uh, getting back to what Jen said there will be uh, there will still be I think even a greater emphasis on whole of government approach to to the counterterrorism effort. um, I will say that in my time in DOD, we probably didn't have as close a link up with Treasury as we should have. And I think that's probably still the case today. Um, And uh, I don't think that, um, and and probably the other way around, Treasury probably didn't have as, as good an idea of how the operations were shaping financial reactions as we should have. And so I think there's a, still a lot of work to be done in terms of that whole of government approach and making sure, no kidding, everyone has a really good understanding of you know, the, the action and reaction, whether it's an action on the, on the uh, regulatory front that, that, that uh, results in a reaction on a sort of a military intelligence front, or vice versa. And I would say vice versa is probably, at this stage in the game, where we are with ISIS and ISIL and uh, ISKP. Um, that's probably more of, the, more of something that will happen. As, as the military gains start to start to really pick up, mm-hmm. th- That there's going to be this, this infusion of activity now in the financial fronts as they try and cut and run. And so it's, it's really important for the military to stay very closely tied in to Treasury, and the U.S. Milita- military to stay tied in to Treasury, and also um, for our counterparts to stay tied in together, because that's where you're going to see where they're kind of running to. That's what's going to cue... Where are they heading to, and what might they be up to next?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think I know in the Middle East they've been working on that, and it's, it's been improving yeah. year by year, especially with their targeting of oil refineries and oil production. So yeah, I mm-hmm. know you're right. I think there's mm-hmm. room for for, right. for more. Right. And then I, you know, Prasad, do you have anything yeah, else?
5: Yeah, Al Qaeda and the IS, uh, what is rightly said, probably the next destination may be elsewhere, including South Asia. Uh, but let me say that they are not new. They're not yeah. n- uh, new to this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been here. And they moved to Syria and other places. The Al-Qaeda always have been there. And IS is uh, no different from Al-Qaeda. And many of them moved from here and there. And now if you look at there, there's a competition between them two. up. So one is Al-Qaeda and Indian subcontinent and uh, Khorasan province. Uh, so but who are these people who are actively, actually part of these two groups? are already existing groups functioning within those countries, whether mm-hmm. off Pakistan, area or Bangladesh or India. So basically, the local organizations, earlier who were uh, given uh, allegiance to Al-Qaeda, they see IS is more successful, more radical. So let them shift this allegiance to them. Mm-hmm. So many of them worked for them. So either some of the Taliban groups and maybe other uh, and all kinds of groups, which are now functioning as part of the IS, uh, they're not different. They've always been there. So who are these new people who are going to come? Basically, some of the people who gone there, fighting there, and will come back. Maybe some leadership will come back. So whatever the channels that have been existing, they will continue to use. That's going to be the initial financial sources for them. So whatever the finance that they can bring, is they can't bring huge monies anyway physically uh, but many of them have their uh, enterprises commercial enterprises the can their agents will be there their uh, middlemen will be there they will be transferring whenever that even in europe they have uh, huge uh, infrastructure so the, the, the they are not going to bring huge monies first question the money is sources are already available the whatever that Channels that we have spoken a little ago, they are all available for them. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to be using them. And uh, they will use them for transfer of the additional monies that are coming either from Middle East or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think whatever the tools that we have been using to control these existing channels, I think those will be effective. And second, uh, the most important thing is that uh, to control their movement, that is precisely the key. Uh, so as long, once you put pressure on that, they find ways to move other places. <coughs> they have done an a number of times. Uh, so this is the key question. So now, uh, so many governments are involved in fighting uh, in the uh, Middle East. So everybody has a uh, client uh, organization there. So they will be providing probably cover to move out. So how, how do you ensure that these countries also help us? Maybe Turkey, maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Qatar. There's a number of problems where you need to, one, work with the governments in the region to uh, really see the threat coming up once they are moving out into the states where they have come from. And second, of course, uh, militarily, push them into a corner and attack them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think some of those issues, besides whatever other tools that we have been using, I think could be effective.
2: Interesting. So I, I'm going to ask one last question, then we'll turn it to the audience, and that's um, the you know I think people are always interested in best practices and what has worked um, or what has failed. But I think the question, and and Jen, you had mentioned this earlier of you know you've for example you said you worked with Pakistan closely and um, and that they've they've done they've done some things that have had a real positive effect. So can can any of you and we'll start with Jen again on what have your experiences been in? Um, uh, steps that have been implemented that have really had a positive effect. For example, if you want to talk to, about Pakistan or the demonetization policy, I find it's very interesting. If you can talk about the goals and is that a model that should be, um, that should be replicated elsewhere. Um, so let's, Jen, start again.
3: Um, so yeah, so if I think about best practices and um, or just let's let's say good practices, <laughs> things that have yielded good results, um, you know, I think um, this is just picking up on something that um, Pat mentioned, but it's obviously a real focus for the treasury department. I mean, when governments are able to harness the cooperation of the private sector and increase their understanding of the threat and to give them the information they need to be vigilant inside their own financial institutions, I think it's very, very effective. You know, um, I, since I started traveling to Pakistan and uh, made a few trips to Islamabad and Karachi, you know, I've seen and met with the financial institutions there, you see the Pakistani government has given them some guidance and um, information that they can use to to try to be vigilant um, in their own, inside their own financial institutions when there potentially isn't hawal or they're dealing in certain areas of Pakistan that can pose them additional risks. So, I mean, I think that's a very positive step. Um, Pakistan was um, part of the FATF's review process and um, in February last year was um, exited from the process because they made so many significant improvements in their legal regime um, and I think, you know, that is an incredibly positive step for any country to really look at their own laws and shore them up to make sure that they're dealing appropriately with the terrorist financing threat as a criminal matter. Um, they certainly, there's certainly more to do in Pakistan. Um, we've seen very, very very positive steps from Pakistan in terms of freezing assets um, that are required to be frozen per the UN you know I think there are a lot of things that go beyond asset freezing that still need to be done and the really difficult and challenging work of preventing fundraising um, in, by some of these groups inside mm-hmm. of Pakistan and that is a challenging you know challenging task for Pakistan and for any government um, so that that really does remain to be done I think um, um, but I think those steps um, are, are, are incredibly Positive and and they can really um, be something that other countries look to 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 look at the laws they need to change. Um, what do they need to do with their private sector? Um, and I think those are things where we see a lot a real a real positive impact in other countries too.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. And then and Prasad, if you could talk more about the demonetization policies, you know, yeah. the goals is that a possible model to be replicated um, as well, a means well, of counterterrorism?
5: Yeah. Well, uh, demonetization. In principle, it's, it's, as I said, two sides of it. One is, of course, uh, to unearth black money that is accumulated. And mm-hmm. second, of course, uh, the to, to terror money. So as I said, that uh, the initial success was there. Um, definitely that uh, um, many of the terror groups were put to rest at least for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, what it did is, in fact, uh, is once this announcement came, what I observed, this sudden kind of first initial shock is nobody knows what to do, how to do. Then as uh, things settled down, they said, "Okay, probably we must try and do something. So they were trying to take the big amounts of money and uh, trying to corrupt some people and change the money. So here, I think the measures taken by the government since uh, 2014, when this particular government came into force, is putting together all the agencies. The systems were created where, like you mentioned, defense doesn't deal with Treasury. So it's the same system in India. The finance will not talk to uh, Home Ministry, Home Ministry will not talk to the defense. So each one revenue has its own kind of data. So everybody's sitting pretty on data.
4: <coughs>
5: and nobody shares this. Nobody knows what's happening on the other side. So one thing that uh, they started is basically Create nodal agency and uh, daily meetings of all these people together and exchange of uh, uh, material real time, real data. So, in the process, uh, the unearthing of this black money or uh, corrupt money is astonishing, guys. Between uh, April 14 and uh, November 16, when uh, demonetization came into force, there about 312 billion uh, undisclosed. Uh, income sources came out, they seized 21 billion. And since November, this 26 billion unaccounted money was unearthed. So there's a huge money coming out. It's like uh, pushing water and the whole, out of the hole all the rats coming out. So it's effective. But how long it's going to be effective? The question mark. The fake money has gone, so you can't use it. Uh, those terrorists, whatever the money they have, they can't come out openly and uh, change it. <coughs> but gradually, so over a period of time, people find ways. Mm-hmm. Again, black money will build up. Again, fake uh, currency can come in. The question is, how do you sustain the demonetization process for a long-term impact? That's the key. That's what uh, the the government is uh, looking at. So one is uh, the, the immediate. Uh, Uh, benefit that is coming out of this process is digitalization. So all the transactions are being digitalized. So even small uh, retail shop, uh, which never had any bank account or anything, now they have set up all these mobile applications. So even if you want to buy for one rupee of uh, stuff, you can go and buy. Mm -hmm. So these three wheelers, that uh, uh, taxis that I have, Uh, Basically, they also have this system now with the Paytem. There's a new application that came. So you can just pay whatever it is. So increasingly, you see the India becoming digitalized. So uh, currently, the estimates were about 85% of the transactions are in cash. So idea is probably after this process, this will come down to something like 50, 60 kind of thing. Mm
0: -hmm. Even
5: if you have 60% of uh, money transfers happening through cashless. Uh, it's a great achievement. So it's a, a good method measure, but the implementation problems are there. I think which are expected, and uh, the money, actual money printed and circulated, will be going to come down, and all that money even issued now is going to be withdrawn, to encourage digitalization. Uh, so gradually, I think over a period of time, uh, this will help to stop terror finance to an extent, uh, but. Uh, The human mind is, you know, pretty intelligent. They'll find ways (laughs) to create new avenues. The only thing is that we have to be alert to what the new things happening and uh, cut them short when uh, it's happening. Mm -hmm. But whether it can be replicated in other places, I don't know. I can't comment on that. The only aspect is is that fake currency is fake Indian currency that's being uh, uh, pumped in. So no uh, Bangladeshi currency. Of course, they will be there, but not the kind of scale that we are looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in uh, South Asia and other countries, the currency circulations are not that huge, like in India. So uh, it may not be really working there. there. Um, but Indian example, in terms of digitalization, I think that's what's going to be helpful to most of the countries. Mm-hmm. I think th- that they have to encourage this. And uh, another measure that was uh, in- introduced was uh, Janadharan accounts in India. So all, everybody, without even uh, one rupee being deposited, the banks are supposed to open accounts for laborers, <laughs> for construction workers, whoever it is. Whoever wants an account in rural areas or elsewhere, the banks are supposed to open their account. Uh, the account. Once that is open, some amount is given by the government. All the subsidies that are being paid by the government now routed through the banking channels. Like, for example, the uh, uh, LPG gas that's being used at home. Now there's a subsidy for everybody. <coughs> mm. So that subsidy is not being given at the retail shop now. That subsidy amount is being routed through the bank channels. Mm-hmm. So the digitalization that is coming out of this is, I think, I'm surely going to help uh, uh, in the lo- uh, longer run. Um, well, Good. we have to continue this pressure, I yeah. think. This, uh,
2: Good, good, okay. Um, all right, let's go. Patrick, do you have anything to add to
5: well, the idea of good the, practices well, that you've had in, in your experience? in terms of and best practices, we'll of
4: audience. course, uh, you know, the, the, um, the anti-money right. laundering regimes are great and, uh, you know, sort of... M- monitoring where the funds are moving, but that's one part of a larger issue of how to address terrorism, how do you, how to conduct a counterterrorism campaign, what is the best way to do it. Governments have gone back and forth. Um, in, the, in the United States, for example, we had a, um, a sort of an approach that was all um, law enforcement and then we had an approach that was heavily uh, sort of militarized under the Bush administration. Pri- prior to the Bush administration, it was all law enforcement. And we had a continuing run of, of attacks. Um, under the Bush administration, it was more of a military-led kind of campaign with a uh, with an additional additional law enforcement arm to it, if you will. And then under the Obama administration, it's been more of a, a, a law enforcement campaign with, an, with a military arm to it. And folks can look at back and forth and see which was more effective in terms of our attacks continuing, where are the attacks taking place, what's the nature of the attacks. So I think governments have to look at all of that and decide how are they going to proceed. The French have just gone to more of a, uh, now they're leaning more in the direction of a military campaign following the the, uh, Paris attacks and they've had their own declarations there. So I think governments are going to have to look at that and decide what's best for them in terms of how are they going to approach this issue. Um, I think frankly that uh, the the real key is to gain a sharing of, of information whether you call that intelligence, whether you call that information among non-intelligence uh, agencies, it, the key to this whole endeavor on a global scale will be how do you share the, the most sensitive information that creates the greatest effect for the government that receives it. And I think that's going to be the challenge. And that is, to me, that the best practice is get information shared, and the information that is shared has to be actionable, and then the government who receive the information have to protect it and have to be able to take appropriate action based upon the information received.
3: Mm -hmm. I me just add one I I mean I I guess another thought occurs to me really in terms of best practices and and I think you know where we've seen a lot of impact is where countries really do work on their internal information sharing and internal cooperation. Yeah. That's something that we've done really well in the United States and we've, we recently got a lot of credit for that in the FATF's assessment of our efforts to mm-hmm. combat terrorist financing. Um, and We're really recognized for all of the interagency work that happens, all of the coordination that goes on. And I think when you see countries that are able to really make it possible for law enforcement, intelligence, financial, regulatory, to all work together either through a committee or some other type of, of arrangement, um, you see strides in their ability to deal with terrorist financing um, and I think it also is true that as the FATF recommends countries do when you see countries do a real risk assessment when they really identify where their greatest threats and vulnerabilities are um, we see you know a, a big improvement in the impact they have in their in their efforts to address those mm-hmm. so I think focus and um, you know, being focused on a particular issue and having the structure in place to really make it work within your own government is really important.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would note that before uh, 2001, we weren't we were terrible at, at interagency communications, terrible at it. Mm-hmm. And we, through a lot of hard work from folks inside the government, uh, in, in multiple now administrations really have fought to break down those walls and barriers that's on true. the sharing of information. So it's not something that somehow we naturally ascribe to. It's not. It's something that we had to go through our own growing pains, our own problem sets that arose, uh, and, and you know, a lot of airing of, of issues that we missed some things. And uh, so w- we've done that too, and, and we continue to do it every day. So mm-hmm. I, that's a great point.
2: Yeah, it's true. you really reached the potential. When we've more, well, yeah, with more, we're getting there, no chain. doubt.
4: But it's still work to be done. But we're getting there.
2: Yeah, definitely. All right, great. Um, so it looks like there are a lot of um, hands. I'll start. I'll start with Vipin. Is your hand raised? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll start with Vipin, and then we'll move. We'll I'll move here, and okay, and we'll go to the back. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, we
1: we talked about digitization, and, and thank you. Uh, by the way, it was a great discussion. Uh, but the new technology services that are being offered, which offer these encrypted channels of communication such as whatsapp or snapchat or whatever um, are they facilitating the these non banking financial channels to transfer money and uh, is it hampering our law enforcement services to track and and if if that's the answer are they winning the battle or there is something else that <laughs>
2: um who do do well, who I mean, like in, to in start t-
4: in terms of winning the battle i'll have to defer to jennifer but i mean all of those channels are going to be used and are being used mm-hmm. to move uh money move communications to to do different things it basically is bringing the hawala system into the digital age so you know for folks who know how the the they, they black web works the black web works because it's got burst communications that go and so essentially a couple of folks get up at the same time they the burst goes out and the burst gets received and then it shuts back down again and um, so th- that is a huge challenge to try and figure out how to first of all to figure out exactly what's going on and then to try and figure out how to regulate it um, and, and what is exactly being communicated it's very difficult to understand as well because it's typically understanding communication uh, It involves having context. There has to be some context to some kind of communication in order to really pull it apart, get an understanding of what they mean. And then once you get that, then you can, now you can, you're sort of on the inside of the inside. But when you have burst communications, it's really hard to to catch all the bursts and it's really hard to create context. So um, I I would say, um, and again, I can't speak to what Treasury is finding, but in our own practice area at PwC, um, our clients are having a difficult time you know, sort of nailing down exactly what's going on when you have these burst communications, and uh, and we're, we're looking carefully at the digital currency systems that are mm-hmm. arising. And you know, obviously, folks know about Bitcoin, but Bitcoin will, you know, may have been the first big one, but it certainly is not going to be the last one. And organized crime, they know that these all of these structures are going into place, and they know it makes it more difficult for them to do business. And they're going to, as, as was said before. They're smart folks. They're going to figure out another way to move money from A
5: to B to support what they're trying to do.
2: Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah, the technology goes up, the innovation's going up. I think uh, we have to grow along with that and uh, find ways to curtail that. But I think governments are going
4: to be placed in a situation where, and and, our own government was placed in a situation where they, they went to Apple and said, hey, look, we need to get into this phone. And Apple said, well, wait a minute here. I get a competitive advantage by not letting you into this phone. And uh, governments are going to have to decide how much privacy are folks entitled to. Is there a mechanism by which governments can demand from, from the private sector? It doesn't matter to me what you sold this thing as. I'm the government. I have a need to know. There's a public imperative. I need to get at that information. And, and so I think that that's kind of the next frontier. Where are we heading with all this? And are governments going to have the ability to get into encrypted systems? And then, of course, that you come down to the point of are all the encrypted systems going to be there by legitimate uh, commercial vendors or are they going to be placed there by you know folks that are off the net that are creating encrypted systems and you can't find out like you know you don't have an Apple to go to to say hey unlock this phone it's the the encryption is created by someone who's not generally known Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I'll just, uh, you know, as it relates to virtual currency, you know, obviously um, this is something that we have to, you know, spend a lot of time to try to understand and to deal with. And it's virtual currency exchangers have to be registered in the United States. They're regulated. That's something we want to see happen globally. And we think it's really important. Um, But, you know, I have to say, you look like, you look at virtual currency as it stands now, who knows where it will go. Um, And so we have to have a flexible sort of approach. But I think it's fundamentally the same issue as any other money transmission. Service we need it to be regulated and subject to the same controls um, that that we see in other places and that has to do with transparency so obviously we have a little conflict there um, but that's something that um, you know I think our system has begun to address um, and it's something that we're working you know within the FATF and other places to get other countries to take the same approach
2: mm-hmm. all right great um, let's move you had your hand up as well earlier um, and then I want to make sure we keep responses short so that we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taken as sure. many questions as possible, um, and uh, can you introduce yourself? Sorry, sure. I should have mentioned. Thank you, you thank, before you, great thank you. Great
6: discussion, great panel. Uh, my name is Mahbub Saleh. I'm the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of Bangladesh in Washington DC. Uh, of course, uh, the the name of the country has been mentioned uh, uh, quite in a quite relevant manner, I would say. For uh, um, the sake of uh, objective discussion, and uh, the challenges are definitely true, no question about that. I'm not uh, going into the debate of whether entity A, B, or C are present there in physically or not. That's not the topic for today, but uh, um, a few, few ideas that, that uh, came to my mind as an absolute non-expert in this area, uh, particularly in front of uh, people like you. Uh, we need to make cash transaction uh, more more difficult in in uh, all the countries in, in south asia uh, establishing banks and and uh, uh, money exchanges from say for example my own country to the places or in the places or countries where we have a huge number of expatriates who are s- semi skilled or unskilled don't really have um, that level of intellect or that level of smartness to go to a foreign bank and, and open an account. If they find, for example, a local group of local people operating that, that branch, we have done that and it has uh, proven to be uh, somewhat effective. Um, opening bank account uh, in, in the country must be made easier. Of course, we need to uh, have the digital identification, which we, uh, at least I can speak for my country, we have been doing uh, since 2008. And uh, opening a bank account must not be a challenge. We need to encourage uh, people to send money through formal channels. But how containing hawala or challenging hawala or controlling it is a huge task, as 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 we all know. And one uh, uh, aspect is to make the formal transactions as practicably easier as we can. Uh, opening the bank account is the first step. Um, I mean, it's, I, I appreciate what uh, uh, Prasad has said that even without depositing a single uh, taka or, or, or rupee, you can open a bank account, but. How cumbersome is the process of opening that bank account? I think that's more important. It has to be very easy. Last uh, um, thing is, which uh, I, um, I, 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 should say I expected, uh, the difference in exchange rate, if you send money through Hawala, in most of the cases, and perhaps in all the cases, you get a better rate. than if you send the money formal exchanges. I think we need to look at that uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
7: Thank
2: you. Thank you for your comments, Mahbub. Um, well, I'll turn to you. You have the last question. But before I, before turning to you, I just wanted to see if anybody had any comments in me to respond.
4: Oh, no, I think all great points.
2: Yeah, they are all really really helpful points. Yeah, I I agree. Think,
3: you know, I think the opening a bank account question um, it has to do with. Of forms of ID right in a lot of cases and I think that's something a lot of countries in this region are really doing a lot of work on yeah. I know Pakistan and India both um, have done a lot of work on this and it's something you know that we are focused on globally um, we just at Treasury had a, um, a digital ID sort of event to try to understand better what's happening in the world of digital identity because it does seem like that's a potential solution um, going forward but yeah the cornerstone issue here is how can you get a bank account how hard is it to get one how do we make it easier
5: Mm-hmm. Okay, last yeah, question. Just oh, to add point. Yeah, I agree with all the points. And uh, just to continue with the previous question, the digitalization has another uh, major issue of hacking. There's uh, mm-hmm. now criminals getting into the hacking activity, diverting the money to uh, various other places. This is a huge challenge again. Uh, getting into bank accounts or uh, uh, making digitalization perhaps is the easier part of it. Now, how to secure the transactions? And that's going to be a major challenge, particularly countries like India, which are going into ma- massively into digitization. The problems like uh, the bank in uh, Bangladesh uh, so huge money being transferred. So uh, uh, hacking going to be a major issue, technically? So how do we deal with it mm-hmm. is an important mm-hmm.
2: I think hacking is a major issue globally here. Um, yes, last question.
7: Hi, I'm Jay Khansar with the Hindu American Foundation. And my question is that uh, perhaps we should have also had a State Department (laughs) representative here as well to get the uh, full government perspective from the U.S., but since you're a U.S. government representative, I'd like to uh, present this question to you, Ms. Fowler. What is the United States doing to ensure that U.S. aid monies... Are not are used effectively in these countries to thwart radical ideologies from spreading, in in you know with civil society actors and non-state actors because we can stop these illicit and uh, informal transfers of money. Uh, and that does have a great effect but if we're not countering the ideologies that are that are perpetrating these terrorist organizations and attacks, then I don't see us really, uh, I, I see this just as a stopgap or, or a speed bump for them and they'll find another way and oftentimes they're using more formal uh, more formal uh, mediums such as political parties. For example, Jamaat-e-Islami in Bangladesh or Jamaat-e-Islami in Pakistan. These are operating out in the open and they're perpetrating ideologies that are very counter to democratic principles. And uh, they, they can use, they have cash transactions in US dollars even. Thank you.
3: Um, so I appreciate the question um, and it's a great question. I, you know, I do have to, <laughs> I have to defer to my State Department colleagues who are absent. To be, to, be fair,
2: to be fair, State Department was, uh, we reached out to them, but the two people could not make it. Actually, they really genuinely but couldn't.
3: But so. I'd have to defer to them on the use, sort of the use your 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 question on, um, you know how aid, U.S. assistance. But you know, as it relates to, I think part of your question, um, what do we do about um, countering ideology? There is a piece of that that relates to, um, you know, a topic that we discussed earlier, which is the abuse of charities. Um, that's one of the reasons that. Uh, terrorist groups want to to, to abuse um, the charitable sector. It gives them legitis- legitimacy. It allows them to provide really needed social services in some of these countries, um, and gives them that that veneer um, that's really important. So, I mean, that's something that we try to address using our authorities when it's appropriate, um, and by exposing what their true activities are. I mean, just this last year, we did a couple of um, of sanctions actions against um, two Pakistan-based charities that were in involved in um, you know terrorist support and we think it's important to make make those known when we have an identified um, actor in that way we need to be public about it if we can um, and impose sanctions on them but a part of the value of that is to make it known that what the what those organizations are really involved in Um, and I think that's one way that we bring you know a particular authority to that to that effort, but I have to sort of defer to others on the use of U.S. assistance. Can
4: I just jump in on the back end of that? So having been deployed into several war zones, um, you know, I think folks have this idea somehow the U.S. can actually influence that to a great, great extent. And I would have to say, it's been my experience that the U.S. ability to influence that is limited. And that really, it's the it's the nation that is affected that they have to take action. They are the ones that have to take the lead. So for example, we've spoken about Pakistan. The US has very limited reach into Pakistan, whether through aid or through other mechanisms. It's up to the, the Pakistani government, on the other hand, has a great deal of, of leverage that they can use to to try and counter some of these ideologies that are growing in terms of how the education system is put together, in terms of how they spend their infrastructure dollars, in terms of how they set up their own, um, you know, uh, opportunities that, that are grow, that, that are out there for, for the youth to try and and try and get them into a better place than perhaps their parents were. So I think that it, sometimes folks think that the U.S. can structure this in such a way that we can have a considerable impact. We might have some, but I would, I would argue that the impact really is, has to come from within the particular governments and within the particular uh, countries. And when I say governments, I don't just mean at the national level. I mean all the way down to the local level. The governments need to step in and recognize the threat. And, the, and sometimes they think the threat's going out there. But I think as Pakistan is now kind of realizing, the threat doesn't go out there all the time. The threat comes from home. Um, and with the destruction of ISIS, that, I think it's going to grow.
5: Yeah, uh, let me jump yeah. in a mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, uh, we, uh, there is an issue about some of these uh, aid agencies' money getting into wrong hands. Um, out of the 9,000 NGOs that registration was canceled in India, some of them even American. Uh, so how this mechanism works, let me just explain a little bit. Um, the American agency will provide the money uh, to different uh, NGOs functioning in uh, remote areas, uh, depending on uh, what kind of agenda they're being addressed to. Uh, the verification of these NGOs, local NGOs, uh, due diligence is taken, but uh, often it's not possible, um, uh, particularly in uh, off-park areas uh, and tribal areas. So this, how these NGOs function, what are exactly doing, uh, I think there need to be a greater, uh, government-to-government discussion, uh, before the money is actually given. I think they need to take local NGOs being verified by the local police, uh, before. It, but it, I don't think it's happening. Any of the American agencies giving aid, uh, I don't think they are doing that local due diligence. Uh, North Eastern areas and remote areas, some NGOs are there. They come and, uh, give a beautiful presentation that, We are going to uplift this number of people and kind of things. Uh, But God knows where it's happening. Sometimes if not out of 100, even one it goes wrong, things can go wrong. So that's one where we have issues in Gujarat and other places where some of this license had to be canceled. Similarly from Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of charities, even semi-official agencies like USAID in Saudi Arabia, they transfer funds in the name of charity to various NGOs uh, in India and other countries in South Asia. And uh, majority of this money is not being utilized for the purpose it should be utilizing. And so where where is this verification mechanism? So the money is going. I think there needs to be a greater government to government uh, discussion about it. There must be greater checks of whether the NGO is really doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, That mechanism is not fully uh, available now. Mm-hmm. I think probably now it's coming up after this 9,000 uh, cancellation, registration cancellations. Now the greater discussion between uh, India and US uh, State Department. So similarly with other governments, including Saudi Arabia, we had a uh, good discussion <coughs> with Saudis. And UAE. UAE has taken control of many of these uh, NGOs to stop them. Uh, so th- that I can, mechanism needs to be put in force.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to the three panelists for joining us and taking the time out of your day. And thank you. Thank you to all we'll of you for coming.